the chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. The greatest form of assimilation possible just happened. To take away the very names that showed their identity in their country and in their God. It's an incredibly effective tool. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Life Church Canton podcast. My name's Sam. Uh, I'm the host. Thanks for listening. This week's episode is week number one of a new series that we're calling Daniel, What Are You Afraid Of? Uh, this, this series is kind of a uh, book study on the book of Daniel um, with a focus of looking at how uh, Daniel faces his fears um, and the strength that he gets from God to face those fears. Um, I think it's going to be a really cool message. There's a lot to this story, to this particular book of the Bible. And in this particular message, Nathan kind of dives deep on Daniel's identity. One of the things that happens to Daniel when he gets captured is his name is changed. It's changed from the name that he was given when he was born, his Christian name, um, and he was given this new name, Daniel. And Nathan kind of walks us through how Daniel um, responded to that and how um, when we have change in our lives, how we respond really affects our outcome. So I hope you enjoy this message. Uh, I think it's a good one. Here's Nathan. What brings you to church today? Well, I'm here because I love being with you guys. Not just because it's my job, but because I love my job. I love being with you. Thank you so much for interacting with each other. Hopefully you made a new friend or met someone. Glad that you're here. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're starting a brand new series, and I want to start it off right. And so I want to know if there, who is the biggest Michigan fan in the room? Who's the biggest Michigan fan? Okay, why don't you come on up here, Paul, because you scare me. Come on up here. No, I'm serious. Get up here now. Now you have to come on stage. Yeah, because I said so. Get on up here. All right, give him a round of applause or boo him, whatever you feel like. Michigan State fan. Who's the biggest Michigan State fan in the room? No Michigan State fans in the room? Oh, come on up here, sir. Come on up here. Come on up. Come on up. Yeah, that's you. Come on up. All right. Now, who's, who's the big, besides myself, who is the biggest Ohio State fan in the room? Anyone? Is there an Ohio State fan in the room right now? Fine, I'll do it myself. Come on up. Come on up. Why don't you tell us your name? It's okay. You're wearing my color. Mm, that's nice. Why don't you tell? Why don't you? Uh, why don't you tell me your name? My name is Paul. And uh, which team do you feel is the best? Uh, team as far as football team, you mean? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> the Michigan Wolverines. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. All right. What's your name? Woody. Woody, uh, another great Buckeye name. What is up with you guys? You should be on my team. Uh, <laughs> what? Uh, what's your favorite team? The Lions. Okay. What to, I brought you up because work with me here. Michigan State by proxy because my son went there and we pay so much to go. I have no choice. <laughs> yeah, isn't that the truth? Okay. So I have, um, I have some, some wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, name tags here. And the deal is we're big on name tags here. We like having name tags, help each other, know each other. But I'm going to give you a name tag. You can't read it. Okay, and you just got to put it on, and then I'm going to have you read it in just a second. So once you put it on, cover it up. So don't read it. 
Don't do it. I'm going to put it right on you. Just cover it up. There you go. Awesome. I'm going to play along too since I'm the only Ohio State fan brave enough in the audience to, to embrace it. So I'm going to play along and go with that. All right. All right. And here we go. I'm going to put this on you here. We'll go from there. All right. Don't look. Cover it up. Okay. okay. So your team again was? The Michigan Wolverines. All right. Go ahead and uncover your name tag. And what does it say? Go ahead and read it for me. Brutus. Yeah, Brutus Buckeye. Thank you very much. How's that? How's that make you feel? Um, betrayed. <laughs> Are you enjoying that name tag right now? Not really. Not really. Oh, okay, okay. All right, your turn. What was your, what was your team? Michigan State. All right. Go ahead and look. Oh, what does that say? Wolverine. Wolverine. So you're a Wolverine. How do you feel about that? I'm calling you Wolverine. You feel great? Yeah. This backfiring a little bit. <laughs> now, now, mine says Sparty. And, and for me, I'm, I'm pretty good with Sparty yeah. because uh, I, don't, I don't dislike Michigan State. I really never have anything to worry about, really, anyways. Uh, but if I were to put Wolverine on, I'd hate that. Now, why don't you like that name tag? Because of who it represents. So would you say that's who you are or not who you are? Probably not who I am. And for you, you don't care. You're like, I'm good with this. this is, I can take that. It's Wolverine. I, you know, they're a lot more arrogant than, they, than a Michigan State fan. A Michigan State fan is more down to earth. So you don't want to be seen as arrogant is what you're saying. No. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm pretty indifferent, but I'd rather be wearing the Brutus name tag. Will you guys give it up for these guys? Thank you so much. They have to wear those the rest of the day. Take care. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for participating. Now, why did I do that? Because sometimes we're given names that we like, and sometimes we reject them. Like, if you put Sparty on here, I'm okay. You put Brutus on here, I'm really good. I almost made my wife name one of our children Brutus as their middle name, but that didn't work, okay? I, she, she wanted to go while she was, like, two weeks due date into the Austin Stadium to our tickets that were on the very last row. And I said, honey, you're going to give birth to our child in the stadium. And now that I think about it, we really should go to the game. Um, but anyways, we had these names that we can put on, that we can accept. Anyone have a nickname in high school? Anyone have a nickname in high school? Raise your hand. You, you don't have to share it. Okay, a couple of you. Uh, did you guys like your nickname in high school? Okay, you did. Some of you did. Some of you didn't. Um, it was one of those things for me. I got a nickname in high school, and um, I didn't really care whether I liked it or not. I embraced that nickname fully. And I'm going to tell you right now, you are not going to hear what that nickname was, nor will I tell you, so don't ask, because I'm not a big fan of it. But at the time, I embraced it. Why? Because I traveled around a ton. I traveled around a ton, and I decided um, that this nickname gave me a place to belong. I was no longer on the outside. It got so bad as far as the nickname, because it started in seventh grade all the way through high school and some into college. It got so bad that people didn't actually know my real name. Still to this day, if I go over to my friend's house, they'll say, hey, uh, we're, we're going to go to my mom's house and have some food and whatever. you want to come? And I'm like, yeah, great, great, great. And they will say, hey, Nathan's coming over for dinner. And they'll be like, who's Nathan? Because they don't know who I am. That was how ingrained it was. It took on its own identity. And I took it. Why? Because I felt like I belonged. I was afraid of being alone. I was afraid of not being seen, so I would take on any name you gave me if it meant that I belonged. 
And so for us, we can choose to accept the names given to us or reject them. We can choose that for ourselves, and I chose to accept mine because of fear. Fear is a strong motivator. Amen? There's a lot of things we're afraid of. We'll do a lot to avoid it because fear is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous or it's going to cause pain or it's a threat. And so fear is a strong motivator. We will do a lot of things to avoid things that are unpleasant or dangerous or painful. And so we have fear about the future. Anyone afraid of the future? Afraid of being alone, of never being married or finding someone who sees you? Afraid of losing control over your life or not having a job and not losing control over your finances or losing a relationship or a thing that you have now? We have so many fears. And today, fear is growing. Did you know that? That it's growing at a rate that's hard to understand right now. It's, it's growing so much, and they believe it's because of potentiation, which is a fancy term for when you are in a state of fear, if something comes at you, you respond in greater fear than if it was by itself. And today, we're living in a constant state of fear. One of those reasons is because of the terrorist attacks of 9-11. America's psychology has shifted significantly to one of fear. Millennials and Generation Z are growing up in a world that is insecure. It seems insecure to them, and it's affecting our fear responses more and more and more, and fear is becoming a dominant force. Interestingly enough, researchers have found that we live in a time that's more safe than any in human history, but we are more afraid than we've ever been before. Fear dominates everything from our political ads to toothpaste commercials. It dominates popular television shows, and it's all over our campuses. Smart people have used fear as a motivator. They use it to their advantage to get what they want. Fear is something we deal with every day, and maybe we don't recognize it right off the bat. Maybe we hide it under being financially savvy, but in reality, we're terrified we won't have enough mon money, so we save. Or maybe we're worried we're going to be hurt or abandoned, so we control our relationships. We don't let anybody get too close because you aren't going to hurt me. And maybe we do things motivated out of fear. But when we allow fear to dominate our decisions, when it is the major motivator, it has mastered us. We are now a slave to fear. Fear dominates us. It makes our decisions for us. And many of us have done that. But here's the deal. Fear and making decisions on fear is directly opposed to the good news we have in Jesus it's mutually incompatible with the gospel, the good news. Making decisions based on fear is not what God sent Jesus to die for. He did not bring us to this place so that we would stay afraid. In the Bible, um, it says, do not be afraid 365 times. How many days are in a year? 364, yeah, Michigan education right there. Uh, I'm just kidding. He knows. He was being silly. It's 365. It's almost like we needed to be reminded every single day of the year to not be afraid. We're called to trust in God. This is our truth. This is our reality. And yet, we don't always feel that way. 
Jesus came so that we could have relationship with God again, and then he gave us the same spirit that was inside of him, the same power to overcome death and to do incredible things. That's inside of us. That's why it says in 2 Timothy 1.7, it says, one man speaking to a younger man in love, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. That's the spirit we're supposed to have. We have been given his spirit, this power, which allows us to act in power. This series is about acting in power, not being overcome by fear, but overcoming. To make decisions in love, not decisions motivated by fear of what might go wrong, but make decisions based on what is the most loving thing that can happen in this moment. And finally, he has given us a spirit that disciplines our response to fear. It disciplines our response to fear. Fearful things are going to happen. There's caution in this world. There should be. If you go to the other side, we have shuttles because we don't want people to walk across that road because it's a little bit like Frogger and we don't want you to get squished. Caution is good, but fear sometimes is irrational. And this series is about mastering our fear. Daniel is about mastering our fear, not being mastered by it, not being a slave to it. Is that what you want? Do you want to be free from fear? Because I do. What are you afraid of? Well, this series is about confronting that fear. It's about overcoming fear as a motivator or decision maker, decision maker or our master. And we're going to look at Daniel to do that. Daniel is, a, is someone who actually wrote Daniel. He's a prophet of old, and he lived in a time when there were more fear than you can possibly imagine. And yet, he acted with courage and confidence in the midst of incredible external pressures. And I want to be the kind of person who acts in courage and confidence. And men, you want to be people who act in courage and confidence for your family. And women, you want to be people who act in courage and confidence because that is our inheritance in God, not fear. But we need to look at Daniel and Daniel's going to show us exactly how to do this. And I hope you're ready to go on this ride with us, this four weeks that we've prepared for you. And I believe at the end, we're going to have the tools we need to live into 2 Timothy 1.7, our verse for this whole series. And so I want to go to Daniel right away. I'm going to give you a little background. Daniel right now, uh, when we meet him, is coming from Israel. Israel is the promised land and the promised people. God set apart a whole group of people and made them do things that looked really weird to the world so that they stuck out so that people would know that they're his as a way to bless the world but also to show them the right way. Except that they didn't do it like a lot. They really just were bad people. They didn't do what they needed to do. And so God sent people, prophets, to tell them, like, hey, man, you got to change. You got to do this. And they wouldn't do it over and over and over again. And finally, God says, enough. So we're going to join Daniel in chapter 1. I'd love for you to get out your Bibles. If you have one, you can get out your phone, which you can look up on Google. This passage, you'll go right to it. I'd encourage you to bring your Bibles or to bring your phone and start getting into the Word of God. We just finished a series called The Story of God, which was so incredibly challenging to me and wonderful. It's a series that made the Bible come alive, and we realized that without the Bible and the Word of God, we will not prosper. And so put something prosperous into your life, which is the Word of God and read it. It'll be on the screens if you don't have a chance to get the app downloaded in time. Daniel 1, 1 through 3. 
So during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, Judah, that's Israel, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem, also in Israel, and besieged it. Now listen to the words here. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects of the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Powerful thing going on here. To of note, the Lord was the one who caused this to happen. He permitted it. He had a purpose and he had a plan to help his people. But this is a big deal. Israel is completely conquered. To go into the temple and take their sacred objects was to take away their very identity, to not know what's going on. What would it be like to be conquered? What would that feel like? What would that even look like today? It's hard to even understand. Imagine a foreign army came into America and conquered it, just sacked it, went to Washington, D.C., and took all of our sacred artifacts, like the, like the Declaration of Independence and Lincoln Memorial, then went on to go find the Liberty Bell and take it and go to every single state and take everything away from us that helps us understand that we are Americans. Tearing down the Lincoln Memorial, Done, gone, totally overcome, to be overcome. Yeah, even the people with shotguns those in the South who thought no one will take over me, they get taken out. What would that be like? Can you even imagine what that would be like? It would like plunge us into like so much fear to be conquered. And what if it was like someone completely unseen, like we've never even realized that this could possibly happen. Like what if Canada conquered America? What would that be like? They've just been like real polite up there the whole time planning this, and then they come down and take us out with their maple leaves all across their chest going like, oh, sorry, 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 sorry about that, sorry. And then they just take us over. Would we all have to be polite? I don't know what would happen. Can you imagine how weird that would be? I think it would be amazing for like two seconds, and then it would be bad. It would be bad. Canada, right, takes us over. We can't even imagine what would that be like. In fact, some of you, as I even talked about, an army taking over America, you're so ingrained in our superiority, which we're pretty awesome military, that you said, there's no way that would happen. No way, especially not Canada. But some of you know that even when you think there's no way something will happen, life tends to sneak up on you, like cancer or cheating. Divorce, abandonment, sickness, the loss of your income, the loss of your loved one who shouldn't have died. Life causes incredible fear, and things happen to us that we cannot control. And this is what happened to Israel and Daniel. But it goes even farther. It's even worse. Daniel 1, 3 through 4. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palaces some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Well, select only the strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. Babylon decides to assimilate the young men of Israel to influence the community. This is an incredibly smart tactic to subjugate the people, train their youth to look just like the Babylonians, to act just like a subject. 
This is just as effective as destroying their temple and taking their things. It's to destroy their identity by hijacking their future. And it keeps going. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. Not a bad deal. They were trained for th- to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. And now we meet Daniel. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah, all Israelites. We meet Daniel for the very first time right here. Now, this is pivotal. This next verse that comes up before I say it, this is pivotal. Pay attention. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. The greatest form of assimilation possible just happened. To take away the very names that showed their identity in their country and in their God. It's an incredibly effective tool. And we've used it in our history as well. We homogenize people who come here, and whether that's renaming slaves to destroy their connection to their identity and to their past, or it's about making names sound more acceptable at Ellis Island to belong. Our names have power. Our identity has power. And I believe that this moment in verse 7 is a moment of choice for Daniel and that it's imperative to even why we're talking about him today, that this moment led in the trajectory of his entire life. And in this moment, something happened. I believe that he could choose to accept the name that was given to him like I did with my nickname in high school and belong or reject it like some of you did when I put that name on your chest. He could reject it and remember who he was and whose he was. The reason we're standing here today talking about Daniel in fear is because Daniel rejected the assimilation of his identity, that he rejected it, that he said, no, I am not Belshazzar, I am Daniel. Fear could have dominated his decision. He was completely in their control, but Daniel did something different, and we know this because Daniel wrote this 90 years old when he wrote it, and he never refers to himself as Belshazzar. He refers to himself as Daniel this entire time. He chose in the face of fear to become courageous, recognizing that Babylon's entire purpose was to assimilate and then show dominance over Yahweh God. That Babylon's gods were superior to Israel's. See, that's what happened back then. See, if a country had a god, the god protected the country. And if another country came in and destroyed that country and took them over, it was because their god or gods was better. And right now, what's happening in Babylon's mind is they're saying, see, they are better than your god. And so he names Daniel and his three friends after their gods. See, the god's name were Bel. Marduk, Aku, and Nebo. And what's most likely happening here is Daniel didn't even write the real names that were given because he didn't want to bring any kind of notoriety to these false gods. But their names were probably actually Belshazzar, Shaduku, Mishaku, and Abednebu. To name them after the gods of the culture and thus remake their very identity. What you may not know is that these same three men that are with Daniel... And a few chapters are tested with their lives. 
They are tested and seen if they will go back and take their identity from the past and reject it and embrace this new identity and bow down to the God. And if they didn't, they were going to be thrown in the fire. And they said, no, we bow to no God but Yahweh. They're thrown into the fire and they survive. It's an incredible story of power and maybe you know it. But they were inspired by Daniel not to give up on their God, not to assimilate, not to go in. I believe they were inspired by Daniel and what he does in the very next verse. But we're not talking about the next verse because his courage and confidence to continue and move forward and do something crazy, the rest of this entire book only comes from after this moment. See, remembering who he was and whose he was gave Daniel the confidence and courage to master fear. We can't talk about the rest of the book without looking at this one moment. We're not much different than Daniel. I mean, we live in a different time, right? We're not in the same situation, but we're not that much different either. We live in a culture and a world that rejects God, Yahweh, like our God, like they reject it. They reject most gods in general. They just kind of reject it. It says it's old. It's tired. It doesn't affect it anymore. We have a culture that has tried to assimilate us as well. Not just politically. That's not what I'm talking about. Like tried to give us a new identity. See, culture's goal is always to assimilate people. It's always to make them and wrap them and make them look like everybody else. It's about belonging to what we believe, not about bringing in your own. And we struggle with that in America so very much. But we are in a culture that's trying to assimilate us. Now, I feel that a lot. Ever since I moved to Michigan, I feel like I've been trying to get assimilated like all the time. Like, I don't know if you realize that, but if you move up here and you're a Buckeye, everyone tries to convince you to like Michigan or Michigan State University. It's just not gonna happen. I know who I am, right? Like, I love OSU football. And that's such a minor thing. Like, Big Ten, really, it, God's way bigger than the Big Ten or football or pretty much anything in the world. But what we're talking about America, that's a bigger deal. That culture is a bigger deal. I, I think a lot of us feel a lot more affinity for the American culture than maybe even God's culture. Here's the truth. American culture is not God's culture. The culture we live in, do you know it bears more resemblance to Babylon than it does to the kingdom of God? That's a hard thing to say. It hasn't been formed by the good news of Jesus Christ that we learned about in 2 Timothy because if it did, it'd be based on love. But if I look at just politics today, that's all the farther I need to look to realize that America is based more on fear than anything else. I don't care about how it was formed, whether it was a Christian nation when it began. It's not where we're at right now. We look a lot more like Babylon. And Babylon tried to change Daniel's identity through assimilation, but America has been successful in assimilating us. See, there's a cultural assimilation going on, a name tag, and we've all been given it since birth. It's called the American Dream. It's been given many names, but the easiest one to understand, it's consumer. Consumer. See, our cultural assimilation, what Babylon has tried to do to us, what America has tried to do to us, is say, your name is consumer. Our identity as consumers is so ingrained in us, it might be hard to understand who we are without it. Our job is to participate in the economy, to eat, buy, and get more than we need. Our economy is built on it. 
turning luxuries into necessities. But here's the deal. Fear is the dominant tool used by everything from dating companies, news blogs, presidential candidates, lawn service companies, and even daycares to reinforce that you are a consumer. This is a hard thing to hear. In fact, churches have actually built their growth models on simply attracting people and providing them whatever they want so that they will come and that they will stay without taking them any deeper, without having them look more like Jesus Christ, but just being able to consume. Marriages are built on this idea of consuming but what you can do for me, how you complete me, how you make me feel better about me, how you let me achieve my goals of having children and having this and having that. It's no longer about how marriage is a way that we together can create blessing and security and for everyone around us and our children. It's not about how we can provide a safe place for people. See, marriage is all about me. See, what has happened is we have embraced this consumerism. It says that happiness, security, identity, and meaning come from what we have and what we consume. What kind of car do you drive? What kind of degrees do you hold? From where? What vacation can you afford or at least appear to afford? How good can you look on Instagram and your 401k? Because that's where your identity lies. We are told who we are. Consumer. That we can have it all. We can be it all. We can do it all. That there is a place that will cater to our needs because we are the customer. And the customer is always the customer is always right. The one who's consuming is always right. The dominant story of our Babylon is the consumption of things. That's who you are and should be. Problem with that is fear is the main motivator. Fear of the future, so buy things now. Fear of the future, so have this insurance and have a bigger insurance and have this insurance as well. Fear of missing out. Make sure you go to everything you can. Make sure your kids go to everything you can. Dang, you're not really a good parent if your kids don't have all the opportunities that that kid has. Fear of not keeping up with the mom who has a small business and has a chance to go to the pool and snap amazing pictures. And then he has to be able to be there and this and that. And I can never measure up to that person. Fear of not providing enough things. Listen, you'll never consume enough or store enough to not be afraid of the future if your fear is not satisfied in something bigger than this world. You will never be good enough. A good enough mom, a good enough business owner, a loving enough partner to compare to everyone around you. You ever have enough accomplish accomplishments to feel like enough for dad? You'll never be on every vacation. Your kids will never do every sport. And you will never have enough hot days in Michigan to not hate the winter in Michigan. <laughs> it's, not, it's not real. I just want you to have that expectation. I learned that in one year. <laughs> the consumer identity, though, it's based in fear. That's how it works. In reality, the only thing the gods of our culture have to offer us is fear. Fear of never, ever having the life others have. You are not defined by what you do, though, what you have, and the face you put on. The culture does not give you your worth, but it does give you a name. Will you accept it or reject it? 
My question to you is, do you even know what names you're wearing? What identities you have put on? Like Daniel, you must remember or discover for the very first time who you truly are. You are not of this culture. You are of God's kingdom. While like Babylon, our culture's way of living may last for a little while, it will leave you empty. Daniel knew that he belonged to God and so do you. He found courage and confidence to overcome and live a life of incredible impact. He was dependent on Yahweh as God, not Bel, not Marduk. In that dependence, he found out who he was and who he was and he was used. In fact, he went on to be a prophet that was like quoted by Jesus himself as one that was the most relied on in the New Testament because he lived into it. Do you know what Daniel's name is? What it means? It means God is my judge. Not what other people think about me. Not what this country thinks about me. Not what anything else. God is my judge. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? In high school, I embraced my name. It served me well for a time, and then it didn't, and I was left feeling worse than before on the outside. Whether it was time or whatever, I started to realize it didn't really give me an identity. It was an identity all its own and lived on as its own. In fact, I actually heard someone come up to me and talk about me in the third person but not realize that, that they were talking about a name. It was so weird. And I felt feeling like, who am I? And I've embraced many names that other people have given me and I've given myself. Extrovert, leader, dominant personality, jerk, seem to go together. Soldier, not enough, not worthy. Maybe you have some names as well. Maybe it's nerd or brainiac or plain, disgrace, unlovable, abandonable, forgettable, Hated, annoying, divorced, different, victim, addict, drunk. What we say about ourselves matters. What's on our name tag matters. What have you written on yours? My wife knew me back in high school. She was only one of three people who never called me by that nickname, not once. My mom, my dad, and her. I didn't understand why that attracted me to her so much back then, but now I do. See, she saw me for who I was, for who I truly was. To be seen, to be known, there's power in that. I can't tell you how that affected me, but it gave me the confidence and the courage to be true to who I was. She saw me for who I really was. And God sees you for who you really are. 1 John 3, 1 says this, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us. What does he name us? What does he call us? His children. And that is what we are. 
But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. The culture doesn't know you. And so they call you different things, but God knows you and he looks at you. He sees you for who you really are, a child of God made to be fully satisfied in relationship with him. The power of being a child of God gives you the confidence to know who you are and whose you are. No one gets to name you except the one who made you and moved everything to know you. He calls us his children, and that's who we are. Daniel rejected assimilation, and it gave him the courage to do everything we're going to talk about and overcome some of the greatest fears you could ever have. You have to reject every name given to you except child of God to do the same. You have to reject every name except child of God to do the same. The truth of this is, if you know whose you are, then you belong to God. And if God is for you, who can be against you? If you embrace this, you will face death. You will face the fiery furnace. You will face the lion's den. You will face anything, cancer, death, shame in other people. You will overcome because you know who you are and whose you are. You will reject the shameful names that maybe your parents even gave you. Names based not in love but in fear and you will move in power and make decisions in love and every time fear comes your way you will be disciplined to make the change. You have to realize though that you can't do that on your own. Daniel didn't do it on his own. He had his men with him. I didn't do it on my own. I had my wife and my parents with me. And you can't do it on your own either. But we want to do it with you. There's ways you can do that. Is you can get involved in a small group and people can surround you and tell you and call you out when you're telling yourself lies and tell you who you really are. You can do that by going to Celebrate Recovery, which meets every week on Mondays. Amazing opportunity for you to address the hurts, the hang-ups, and the habits that you have. Any of those things. It's not just for only addicts. It's anyone who's addicted to a name that doesn't belong to them. I encourage you to be a part of that. Finally, you can do it by coming up and praying with us at the very end. At the very end of the gathering, have a chance to pray so we can look you in the eyes and tell you. You're a child of God, and so you're no longer a slave to fear. What I want to do now is I want to finish. And I laid out something pretty hard for us, something that, like, points out how we have adopted something that's been given to us, not by God, but by a culture who is trying to assimilate us into fear. And so I think there's a moment for us to acknowledge that and to repent and give that to God. So I'd love for every one of us to stand up in the balcony and down here, to stand up where you're at, to prepare your heart to meet with God, that this is the point of what we've been doing today because we can't move forward into courage unless we deal with the identity now. So don't check out, pay attention right now. This moment is why we're here. I want you to close your eyes. And I find sometimes it's easier to connect with God when we do something physically that shows that we're open to hearing from him. So I just, wherever you're at, you can just open your hands. No one's looking at you anyways. No one knows. You can open them wide or short or just a little one, just real close. It just shows that we're open to what God has for us. And what I'm going to ask you to do is repent. I'm going to ask you in just a moment to repent of the names that were given to you 
And then we're going to ask God to remind us of who we are. And I don't know what that name is for you. For all of us, I believe it's consumer. But there are other names that maybe got stirred up as I spoke that we have taken on as our own. And so I would just encourage you in a moment to say, I, I repent of the name and name it that I have taken on. We'll do that. So God, all of us right now, we repent of the names that we have taken on. The names of consumer or earner of love. The names we have taken on for ourselves. We repent of them. We turn from them. We take them off and we lay them down. See, that's not who you say we are. God, I ask now that you would look into our hearts, that we would feel you in whatever way we can, and that you would remind us for those who know you as son, as Jesus, for those who know you as Savior, that you will remind us that we are your child. Just encourage all of us just to say to God, I am your child. And for those who maybe don't have a relationship with God but want to and want to know who you are, want to know deep down what your identity was, you're sick of what you have put on yourself and other people have put on you, the only way you're going to know who you are is if you know your God. And the only way you're going to know your God is if someone makes a connection between you and him. And the only person who can do that is Jesus, who sacrificed so that we could be made right, to restore that relationship so we can know who we are again. So I encourage you to pray with me out loud or in your heart. Repeat these words and make this your moment where you turn back to God. Say, God, I'm broken. I have some hurts. I have some hang-ups. I have some things I've done. I know that separates me from you. But I also know that Jesus sacrificed so I could be restored to you. So the things I did could be paid for. So today I choose Jesus. I choose to be made clean and connected to you again. I'll follow you. Tell me who I am. Tell me you're my father, that I'm your child. And I will follow you the rest of my days. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you want to find out more information about Life Church Canton or other churches in the Life Church Network, you can go to lifechurchcanton.org or fill out the form linked in the show notes below, and someone from the church will reach out to you with more information. If you came to Life Church for the first time this past weekend, we would love to know about it. We believe that life isn't meant to be lived in isolation, but we want to connect with you and learn to live like Jesus in community together. If you want to email the show, you can do that at podcast at lifechurchcan.org. You can subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please share it with a friend and leave us a review. Once again, my name is Sam Parham, and you've been listening to the Life Church Canton Podcast. Have a great week, everybody.